What is good, futurists? Michael Zakond here, and you are listening to Our Future, the business podcast for young people. I just wrapped up my midterms for the week. I'm off the leash, feeling pretty good. Back at you guys with another incredible interview. Hope you enjoyed our first ever Our Future Career Series episode yesterday, trying something new where we interview young professionals who landed their dream jobs so you can do the same. My next guest is Dr. Cliff McGeerian, president and incoming CEO of University Hospitals. Dr. McGeerian will be taking the reins as CEO of UH in January 2021, assuming responsibility for a multi-billion dollar business that's comprised of over 28,000 caregivers, researchers, and teachers. Prior to being named interim president and future CEO, Dr. McGeerian served as president of the health system's physician network of 2,000 doctors, and chair of the Department of Otolaryngology, head and neck surgery. When thinking about business, we rarely think about hospitals as multi-billion dollar enterprises, but they are by all means businesses, and it's a tough racket for sure. Dr. McGeerian gives us expert analysis into the business of healthcare, as well as his learnings from leadership in a crisis when the pandemic hit, and his views on the COVID-19 vaccine. Hope you guys enjoy. Dr. McGarry, the way I like to start off my interviews is, you know, when, when you were my age, when, when you were 20 years old, did you envision yourself, first off, being in the medicine field? And did you have any interest in the business side of it at that point as well? When I was your age, when I was 20, um, I was a second year uh, student at Michigan State, and um, I absolutely wanted to be a doctor. Um, I had no idea, frankly, um, that um, that my career would evolve uh, to um, becoming a leader and, in essence, a chief executive officer, which um, uh, I started in, in January right, you know, for our right. system. I had no no idea about that. My whole goal was to um, become the, the, the best doctor I could be. I had visions of being a surgeon and uh, I really wanted to achieve that. And that was really my whole goal. Right. Uh, it, 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 in fact, in those days, I never thought through, you know, where I'd work, where, whether I'd be a professor or not, whether I'd be in private practice, I didn't care. I just wanted to be a doctor. Yeah. Um, so yeah, this is all new. We never really think of hospitals as businesses. What are the business decisions to be made surrounding a surgical practice? What were those decisions that you were exposed to becoming a leader of, of physicians? A lot of them are just basic blocking and tackling, Michael. I mean, when your first question or your fundamental root question was, what are the business decisions that you have to make as a, as a head of a group of surgeons? And how does that possibly translate into running a business? Well, I mean, blocking and tackling, how do you handle a underperforming surgeon? How do you handle uh, the fact that your, you know, your business model says that you're going to pay surgeon X this much money, but you assume this, this doctor is going to bring in this much revenue that leaves you with, right, some margin on what you're paying and you use that to pay for the rest of the department. What do you do when that surgeon is not performing or is not doing the amount of work? Or is so then you have to figure out ways of addressing um, some deltas and addressing productivity, uh, addressing and, and, and looking 
at, at, at just basic business theory, queuing theory. Is the right amount of patients getting into this doctor? Uh, is the call system working? Do we have the right people? Process oriented. Mm-hmm. So, so as a running a department, which typically is a twenty to forty million dollar year operation, you really have to be understanding every aspect of business. What are the contracts that we have that I will accept? You know, are they going to pay me this much to do this operation, or are they going to pay me this much? Well, if they pay me the first one, I can't even pay my bills. So, I need to understand uh, how to. Uh, negotiate contracts um, with third-party payers. I have to understand how to negotiate contracts with doctors. I'm essentially the head of HR because all the secretaries, nurses, you know, people who work at the phone centers uh, are your employees. So I have to learn how to develop uh, a culture, office culture. Um, I have to appeal to donors who may want to fund us because we're nonprofit. So I'm if you will, putting together pitches and stories for uh, donors. And um, these are all basic small instances of some of the behaviors that a CEO of a hospital, make no mistake, it's a real business. Being the head of the hospital is not a business that most Ross grads aspire to be, you know, because it's a tough business. And we run grocery store margins. We, we, uh, we most average margin of a hospital in the United States is 1.6%, right? The businesses that you're learning about have much different margins. Right, um, 1.6%, really? Meaning that if I make, if I, if I bring in a hundred dollars, you know, uh, you know, I, I, if what, I, yeah, I, I make 1.6% um, margin. That's it. So would you say that the kind of work you're doing in a business environment at a hospital is is much more efficient than if it were government run do you think do you think that more people are getting cared well, for I, you know, and I, it's better I, I think you know i don't I, I don't i don't i think that one of the most important things of of customer service and efficiency is some level of risk and reward to the people uh, who run it so if you run a hospital and you're competing to be more efficient, provide better service and be cleaner um, and have more efficiency in answering the phone, you as the leader of that hospital are going to do better because your hospital will see more patients. If you see more patients, you'll have more impact. revenue. That'll give you more oh, yeah. dollars to invest in capital. You can grow, you can hire and life is better. But in some circumstances um and and i'm not you know we we do have some semblance of government healthcare, like in the va system but that's a great that's a great asset but it's unique but in some semblances of government run i always worry is that gonna have still the necessary carrots and sticks to the people working there or is it going to be essentially you know a nine to five job like the post office uh, and therefore, care could deteriorate. We are incentivized to be better every day in the hospital next door, the hospital in Michigan, because it, and that's forcing a product and a value yeah. to the patient. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is, I think, a little bit of just basic capitalism, right? Yeah. Um, it, and and it, it, it seems to work. 
mm-hmm. uh, to make me certainly nervous all the time to want to do better for my patients. Absolutely. And you were named to be the future CEO of, of UH in, I think it was January, COVID, you know, really hitting the United States hard in, in mid-March. What were some of the operational decisions that you guys had to make, um, whether it be upping telemedicine to a new level that had never been seen before about, you know, trying to find and and strategize new technologies that would enable people not being treated for COVID at the hospital to, to get the healthcare they needed. What, what, were, what was that like? I mean, it, could you just give the emotion there? The- yeah, I mean, absolutely. I mean, it was very difficult because it was a, an event that you didn't know exactly how it was going to unfold. So when it first hit, I think the biggest challenge was deciding what level of operations would we continue? Who would we continue to take care of? Because we didn't know how many patients we were going to get. We didn't know if we had enough supplies to manage just the COVID patients. So what were our biggest concerns at that time? First and foremost, our biggest concerns were taking care of the patients in our hospital and making sure that if patients needed us, that they could come in and and be absolutely free of worry for COVID. So we had to outfit all of our doctors, nurses, employees with PPE, uh, personalized protective equipment, uh, create mechanisms of assuring that uh, we had proper cleanliness, social distancing. But it, it, but but then we we had to make a tough decision: is that we're going to cancel elective surgeries? Yeah, because we didn't know yeah. whether or not we we're going to get a surge of people, and we're going to use up PPE for those elective surgeries. So that was a tough decision. And then we had a whole bunch of people standing around, and 30 percent of our workforce wasn't working. Do you send them home? Do you furlough them? Do you lay them off? And then after a few weeks, we realized, oh, my God, this is a huge hit to our, our bottom line. We're, we're literally hemorrhaging hundreds of millions of dollars. So we had to start literally thinking about how we're going to begin mitigating that. Because a pandemic but, isn't an increase in business for a hospital. Like, you know, it's not Zoom when something like this happens, you know, the, the business goes up, right? It's Well, the, the business went up in some areas of okay. the country. I mean, I think... Uh, New York, parts of New York, actually parts of Detroit um, were hit hard, parts of Florida. Uh, but our area was not hit hard. We only had at any given time, and you know, we have 18 hospitals that, that we uh, own or joint venture with. And um, we had at the worst 96 patients in our hospitals at any given time. Some other hospitals had thousands of patients. So you don't get, we didn't get any revenue from COVID. All we did is lose activity. So then we had to figure out, okay, we're going to take a bet that this is going to be lifted in a month or two. If it's going to be lifted in a month or two, whereby patients can come back in for elective procedures, we don't want to alienate our workforce. We don't want to hurt people. So we're going to suck it up and keep paying for the most part. Right. Um, and so we made a bet that by Mar- May 1st, that we would be open for elective procedures. And uh, the bet paid off. So, so we, we kept the, the um, employees. We had to figure out how to utilize them. So what we did is we utilized them to create COVID testing centers, call centers. We helped them set up telehealth mechanisms. We zoomed up from almost 1% telehealth to 90% telehealth it's incredible. in two weeks. 
And so we used the workers who had been displaced from other activities to be doing that. We, we had to create COVID hotlines. Um, we partnered with our, um, our, our uh, colleagues at the Cleveland Clinic. We're University Hospitals of Cleveland. They're the Cleveland Clinic. But we partnered together to have drive-in COVID testing centers. Um, we, uh, we did a lot of things with the people who were retrained to do something else. Um, and then we, we, we had to make some hard decisions. You want to know what business decisions, you know, we uh, all took salary cuts as leaders. We had to uh, hold off on 403B and 401k contributions. We had to hold off on annual merit increases uh, for the whole system. But people did it because they saw the leaders do it first. And we did it first. Um, of course, it was much less uh, to those folks. And then we had to make sure that when we opened back up, we were ready to Zoom. Mm -hmm. We were ready to Zoom. So we created basically a rocket team to when the doors open that we can get everybody back. And that's kind of like other businesses, right? You have this workforce. How can you put them in a new direction creatively and quickly? It's almost like in that sense, I'm seeing your business like all the others, right? How do you take your human capital and put it in new directions to capture changes in demand and changes in consumer behavior and trends. It's kind of the same thing in, in that respect. The government gave a guidance, I think it was November, for, for to prepare for a vaccine. How are you guys preparing for that? How are you thinking about that? Are you thinking about it in the same way as the testing clinics? And you know, I guess the big challenge is how are we going to administer this to, to hundreds of thousands and millions of people? Um, how are you thinking about that? Well, I mean, you know, the same way that, you know, this nation launched the measles vaccine and the polio vaccines and the mumps vaccines, what will happen is that it'll be produced uh, uh, by uh, companies uh, and and into individual uh, um, aliquots uh, to be given. And that will be distributed by a distribution company like McKesson or something to hospitals and doctor's offices all throughout the United States. I think they originally, the government purchased from Pfizer enough for 150 million doses. Now we have 330 million population, so they're going to have to get more. On other companies, hopefully. Yeah, and then those will be distributed at public health departments, hospitals, et cetera. Um, I mean, we've done this drill before. United States has done this drill before. You know, there was, uh, we do the flu shots every year. I mean, yeah. so we, there's nothing new. Uh, the only issue will be how fast can they ramp up the production and how fast can they actually distribute it. But, you know, every year we have a new flu shot um, and we, we, we distribute it. We, uh, um, we've been down this road before. Are you, are you optimistic on kind of the vaccine way out of this? I mean, what are your thoughts on the well, future? I, 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 I think it's going to be a combination of a vaccine and therapeutics because I I, I don't know if this vaccine will be a hundred percent and frankly I doubt it very much. When we take a flu shot, I don't know if you take a flu shot, but if your parents take flu shot, we all are aware that it's one. effective. It's effective sixty to seventy percent of the time, meaning that thirty uh, percent of people get a flu shot still get the flu. So there are going to be people who get the COVID perhaps if I'm right, who got a vaccine. And then the question is, is what do you do? So my, my feeling the way out of it is going to be a combination of really three things, ultimately herd immunity combined with vaccines and then better therapeutics that can, if you have it or think you have it, 
uh, you, we can take medication. We actually trialed one of the first drugs to help called remdesivir. We're the first site in the United States, my hospital. Um, so drugs like that, antivirals. A student graduating, the general piece of career advice in business. Yeah, I, let, let me give you my, my advice. Um, whatever career you're, you're going into, read as much as you can about leaders in that field. Number one. Number two, everyone says work very hard. We all know that. I know all of everyone listening to this will work very hard. Um, but if these, these things are some things that people don't say, be humble. Be humble. Humble leadership is sometimes not that common, but humility is exceedingly important in, in someone who wants to be successful. Honesty is exceedingly important. Do not ever let you get on a slippery slope where you are not abundantly honest in your interactions and your transactions. Develop meaningful relationships with people. Don't necessarily feel you have to have a network of thousands of friends. You really only need, I mean, get meaning, meaningful, non-transactional relationships uh, with people who have trained you, people you look up to, doesn't have to be a ton of them, but people who can advise you. Always look to self-correct and then celebrate your successes and take a moment to celebrate your successes. In other words, sometimes even myself, whenever something, you have some good happens, you think, well, what's the next thing? You, you have to celebrate your successes and then, and then the last thing I will tell you is a bit of advice for businesses, business people. Create a kitchen cabinet around yourself. Collect maybe five to seven people in, over the course of your life. They don't have to be deposited the first day. Who are people that have either you've looked up to, who trained you, who like you, who can be on speed dial for advice about the challenges that you will have. And have a good family take care of your family. Those are the big ones. Absolutely. Well, doctor, thank you for your time. And to all of you medical people who are, you know, saving the planet right now, we, we really thank you guys. And I really appreciate it. Thank you, Michael. Thank all the you. best. Ladies and gentlemen, that was Dr. Cliff McGeerian, president and incoming CEO of University Hospitals. I thought it was super interesting to dive into the business of healthcare. It's such a complex, unique system of inputs and outputs. But at the end of the day, it's a business as much as Facebook or Uber is, it just has a lot lower margins. I think Dr. McGarrion did a great job of explaining it to us in an understandable way. And I just hope you guys have an awesome weekend. Be with you guys again next week. Make sure you subscribe to the newsletter to get that this weekend at ourfuturehq.com. And stay frosty, guys.